This morning we declared in song together, God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy. The universe declares your majesty. You are holy, holy. And we sang, uh, what other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. The question is, for us, is how do we know a God like that? How can we draw near? How do we even know that we will be acceptable to a God like that who is so holy? How do we know this? Well, the good news is that God comes to us. Before we can come to him, he draws near to us. God is a relational God. And communication is a huge part of relationships. And when we communicate, we draw near to one another. When we communicate. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And so he speaks. He draws near. He's not a God who's distant and waits for us to get our act together before he will draw near to us. Psalm 19 is a well-known psalm of David where we encounter three voices. Three voices. And we're going to look and see how these three voices work together to draw us near to our holy God, our creator, who wants us to know him and be in relationship with him. These three voices are the voice of creation, the voice of the Lord, and the voice of man. So we're going to look at how these three voices work together to bring us into relationship with our holy God. I'd like to invite you to stand, if you're able. We're going to read Psalm 19 together. We stand, of course, just out of respect for God's word. If you're unable to stand, that's okay. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous 
altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for how rich it is. God, thank you that your word to us is clear and pure and true and and righteous and good. Father, what a privilege it is to be in your word together as your people. God, we pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning and that your Holy Spirit would be present and active among our hearts to ignite a fire of worship to you. Father, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, that we may receive your word with joy this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So first, the voice of creation. The world we live in speaks to us, but it does so without words. Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. They tell us something about the God who made them. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans 1 when he writes, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In verses 1 through 6, we can see at least three characteristics of creation's voice. The first is that it's, it's ongoing. It's continuous. The message of creation is not a flash in the pan. It's not a, a shooting star. If you blink, you'll miss it. It's ongoing. It's continuous. It's, as David writes in verse 2, day to day. It's night Tonight, it's ongoing. There is not a single moment since the creation of time where the wordless voice of creation has ever ceased. It's continuous. It's ongoing. It's also abundant. Verse 2 says that the voice of creation pours out. It pours out. Think of a, a gushing, overflowing stream its message overflows to the brim and spills over. It's, it's abundant. It's abundant. The declaration of the heavens to the glory of God is not a persistent drip. It's a gushing, overflowing 
stream of knowledge that points to the glory of its creator. It's also clear. Think of the, the wow factor that you experience on a clear summer night. It hasn't been too clear lately with all the rain we've been getting. But think about a nice clear summer night when you go outside and you look up at the stars and it's just breathtaking. It's in those moments, oftentimes it's when I'm bringing the trash out on a Wednesday night before trash day and I look up at the end of my driveway and it's just captivating. And, and I just get a sense for how small I am, how big God is. It's breathtaking. There's, there's a wow factor that's hard to miss. Or if you've ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon with your mouth gaping open thinking, wow, wow. Or you reach the summit of a tall mountain and you pause to drink in with your eyes the vista and you think, wow, wow. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. They've been clearly seen. God is not hiding. He's not hiding. He's been declared by his creation. His glory has been declared ever since the beginning of time in a gushing fashion. He's not hiding. Yet, still, because of advancements in science, some of the scientific community think that we no longer need God. Right? Those aren't, you know, we, we know now those aren't just little lights in the sky. They're, they're blazing balls of fire. And we have all this knowledge of galaxies and universes. And Friedrich Nietzsche famously said that God is dead to express his view that the Enlightenment had eliminated the possibility of God's existence. And for this reason, many in the scientific community believe that a belief in God is a primitive relic from a time when we didn't know any better. But now we do. But in reality, it's, it's the opposite it's a defect in the modern scientific mind, not an achievement if we miss this ongoing and abundantly clear voice of creation that declares the glory of God. It's not an advancement to miss that. It's a defect. In fact, nearly all the founders of modern science were driven by their belief in, a, in the God of the Bible, they believe that if a rational and intelligent God created everything, then it is possible for us to use our reason and our intellect to explore and discover the truths of his creation. Another way that creation's voice is abundant is when that awe factor causes us to scratch that curiosity itch through science. And when you do, the voice of creation only gets louder 
It only gets louder. Just think of the the order and beauty that exists in the basic cell structure. What scientists used to think uh, that that the cell was a a very basic thing is now uh, a, a vast factory of systems. Not to mention the fact that human cells contain DNA and and DNA contains multiple libraries worth of information and instructions. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? I think we have some kids with us still. Kids, I want you to think about this with me. You come down to the breakfast table in the morning and my kids like cereal. I think a lot of kids like cereal. Anyone ever have alphabet cereal? Yeah, alphabet cereal. So you come down to the breakfast table and you find a box of alphabet cereal spilled out on the table and the letters spell out perfectly. Clean your room. Love, mom. And you think to yourself, wow, what a coincidence. It just happened to do that. It just probably, you know, what... You wouldn't think that that was a coincidence, would you? You'd think that mom got down and got creative with your alphabet cereal. So if, if we can come to that conclusion, in that simple analogy, how can we miss the millions of pages of information contained in our DNA? Intelligent information, instructions. How can it be a random act of chance over time. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 that because of human sinfulness, people suppress the truth. They suppress it. He even says that claiming to be wise, they became fools. One more example. After it was discovered that nearby galaxies were moving away from us at high speeds, an astronomer named Edwin Hubble formulated laws for an expanding universe. By measuring their speed and and distance from us, Hubble was able to rewind our expanding universe and pinpoint it to a moment a finite moment in space and time where the universe came into existence. And beyond that, there was no matter, space, or time. Okay? And what this showed is that our universe had a beginning. That there was a point in time where it came into existence. And the problem with this for many scientists was that the accepted theory of the day was that the universe had no beginning. It was eternal. So this rocked the scientific world. Now, secular scientists had to deal with the fact that our universe, all of space, all of time, all of matter, was created. It was created. And if it was created, it had a cause. And this cause had to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, extremely powerful, and incredibly intelligent. Sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? As you can imagine, this did rock the scientific world, and many scientists did not want to accept this new theory. 
They did not want to accept it. Albert Einstein himself said that this conclusion irritated him. It irritated him. But he could not deny Hubble's work, and he was convinced. Robert Jastrow, the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, was amused by the reactions of his fellow scientists, and he wrote a book called The Astronomers, or he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and in his book he writes this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So the voice of creation is ongoing. It's abundantly clear. And the last thing I'll say about this is that it's universal. Their voice goes out through all the earth. There is no language, no culture, no time period or point on the map that it has not reached. David contrasts this with the nature of the sun. Just as nothing is hidden from the sun's heat, so too nothing escapes the voice of creation, declaring the glory of of God. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 1 that there is no excuse for not seeking after God. There is no excuse. The voice of creation is what theologians like to call general revelation. Our second point today will examine what theologians refer to as God's special revelation. This is the voice of God in his written word. Just as the light and heat of the sun gives life to our bodies, the special revelation of God's word brings life to our souls. It's worth pointing out that in verses 1 to 6, God is only mentioned one time. And the one time that it's used, David uses the most generic word for God that he could, El, But in verses 7 to 14, God is mentioned seven times. And with the personal name that he gave to Moses, Yahweh. It's more clear. His special revelation brings clarity. Where the voice of creation is a general revelation, God's special written word brings profound clarity. In verses 7 to 10, we see a wonderful example of Hebrew parallelism where each preceding line mirrors the other. Six different terms are given for God's word and they're they're to be taken synonymously, but uh, there's some nuance to each of these. We'll just go over them quickly. But law, law can maybe better be understood as instruction. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, are referred to as, as law. And in there you have different uh, genres, narrative, lot, lots of narrative. Uh, there is law in there, commands. But all of it can be described as law. Testimony, which is an aspect of truth that God is attesting to. You have precepts and commands, which refers to orders. 
and conveys authority. God's word has authority. The fear of the Lord. In, in wisdom literature, this is another way of saying wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here it's applied to God's word. Rules are his judgments, his verdicts, God's divine evaluation of things, his rules. And in these six statements, we also see six descriptive qualities of his word. And notice that these are all ways that God's character can be described. Perfect, sure, or firm. When you think about it, anyone ever do ice fishing? Or go out on a frozen lake? You kind of do one of these things, you know, before you really go out on it. Uh, you want to make sure it's firm. It's going to hold you up. God's word is sure. It's firm. It's right. Meaning that they're words you can depend on. They're pure. Think of these words in Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. His word is clean or flawless. They're true and they're righteous. Verse 10 adds two metaphors to convey the value of God's word. They're to be more desired and more sought after than even great riches. When's the last time you desired something so much that you saved up for it until you could afford to buy it? Maybe it was an engagement ring or a new car or a down payment on a house. It is right for our hearts to yearn for the treasure of God's word. His word is sweeter than honey. You ever have a craving? You drive down the street and you see Dairy Queen, you're like, oh, Blizzard, that sounds nice, right? When was the last time you had a craving for a certain meal or a certain treat? It is right and good to crave God's word more than fine cuisine. Now look at the list of the things that God's word does. First, it revives the soul. God's word revives the soul. His word is good news for the weary. Anyone weary here? You come in, you had a rough week, and you're just tired. It's good news for the weary. I heard John Piper once describe worship like this. If a fire needs fuel to burn and a spark to ignite it. God's word is is the fuel and the Holy Spirit is the spark that ignites the fuel and it brings the flames and the heat of worship from our hearts. But it starts with fuel and it starts with a spark. Being a good Boy Scout, I can't leave out the fact that fire also needs oxygen, right? Right? So sometimes we've got to be careful about crowding out uh, our lives with busyness. But God's word is a fuel for the fire. The Holy Spirit ignites it and brings fire in our hearts and worship. And this is why, just so you know, uh, we do things with intentionality, but we don't often talk about this. But this is why we begin our service with reading scripture. It's the very first thing we do. We read scripture, and then we have a prayer of invocation, which is a prayer of invitation, inviting the Holy Spirit into our gathering. Because this is what 
weary souls need. This is what weary souls need. We don't need to start our service with a hype man. Are you all ready to worship today? How are you doing? You know, we don't need a hype man. We need the word of God. We need fuel for the fire. And we need to invite the Holy Spirit into our presence and light that thing up. That's where worship comes from. A hype man is like, you ever try to start a fire and you're kind of learning? Like, I think my kids have done this before, you know. They're trying to get the fire going, and they're like, let's just throw a bunch of toilet paper in there, you know. It's, it, like, lights up big for, like, 20 seconds and goes out, you know. That's, that's what it's like when we try to, you know, artificially generate worship, you know, in that way. It's really big and loud for, for a short time, but then it goes out so quickly. God's word is the fuel you need for your weary soul. Sometimes we, we come on a Sunday morning and, and our hearts are just kind of like cold embers. And we just need to throw a log on there and invite the Holy Spirit and watch it light up. God's word makes the simple wise. What great truth is this? I don't know if you've ever thought yourself to be an unintelligent or foolish person, but if so, this is good news for you because God word, God's word makes you wise makes wise the simple. Or maybe you're downcast and life is just really doing a number on you and you can't remember the last time you experienced true joy. God's word is good news for you because his word rejoices the heart. His word rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes and it endures forever. God's word is always in. God's word is always in. It's never out of fashion. It's not like that nice new car you bought 15 years ago and now you turn the ignition, you hope it starts and gets you to work without breaking down. It's not like the the pair of jeans that you fit into when you were 16 and now they're just a happy, fond memory of your former youthful vitality. God's word endures forever. It's always in. Look at the last two things here that God's word does in verse 11. First, it's a warning to God's servants. It's a warning to God's servants. It's a warning to stay away from sin and its destructive effects on our lives. John Bunyan, the Puritan, was right when he wrote this. uh, This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. God's word is a warning to us to stay away from sin, to stay on the straight and narrow. And the second thing is that there is great reward in keeping God's word. James Montgomery Boyce points out here that uh, this is not saying that we will be rewarded for obedience to God's word. That's true, but that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that in keeping them, there is great reward. Augustine once said that sin is its own punishment. And here David is saying that virtue is its own reward. Virtue is its own reward. God made us. He knows how life works best. 
He knows what will lead to flourishing and what will only cause frustration and pain. With little ones in our house, uh, discipline is, is a reality. Uh, and just recently, uh, I have a young boy who's testing the limits and declared to me, I will not obey you. He said that. It came out of his mouth. I will not obey you. I'm like, really? I said, it's actually good for you that you obey me. Because that's how God says life works best. So if you don't want to obey dad, just get ready for a miserable life. Because that's not how life works best. That's not how life works best. His words are not a shackle to our freedom. He's a good God. He's a good God whose words revive the soul, who make wise the simple and rejoice the heart. He's a good God. His words are good. In obeying them, there's great reward. Last point for this morning, the voice of man. The voice of creation declares the glory of God. The voice of God's written word invites us to draw near. We respond to God's voice by drawing near with our voice. Our voice is a voice of response. However, to draw near to God, no one can come like the rich young ruler that you might be familiar with in the Gospels who declared with his voice that he has kept God's law perfectly. I've kept it perfectly. John 1, 8, or 1 John 1, 8, rather, tells us this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. D.L. Moody once told a story about his son who was just given a bath by his mother. And after getting a bath, he runs outside and he plays in the mud. And he tries to come back in the house and the mother says, not so fast. You are filthy. There's no way you're coming into this house like that. And, And the son protests. He says, no, I'm not dirty. I just had a bath. I'm not dirty. I just had a bath. That happens in our house too, by the way. To prove the boy the reality of his condition, the mom simply holds up a mirror and shows him. He's convinced. Yeah, I am dirty. I can see it for myself with my own eyes in the mirror. And here's the thing. When we come into contact with the perfect treasure of God's word, we come to a clean mirror. We come to a mirror, a mirror that shows us our need to be cleansed from our sin. God's word shows us that. It shows us that we're dirty, that we're, that we're unclean, that we need to be cleaned. We must come like the tax collector in Luke 18 who cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. In verse 12, David declares his need when he says, who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent, he says. This is the only voice by which man can draw near to God. And the only reason that David can ask this 
to, to be declared innocent is because the Lord is his redeemer in verse 14. The Lord is the one who cleans him up. God's word points us, it shows us that we need to be clean, but it also points us to the one who will make us clean. While David didn't know the specifics of how God would redeem him or clean him from his sin, he looked forward and he trusted that he would. And today, on this side of the cross, we look backwards and we trust that he did. He did when he died on the cross and rose again. While creation speaks and the written word speaks, God was not done speaking. He was not done speaking. Hear these words in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also... He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God spoke most clearly and most powerfully when he sent us his son, Jesus. It's Jesus, the word made flesh, who is our redeemer. He's the only one who can cleanse us from our sin. To redeem means to buy back. And the payment that God is owed for our sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, it says in Hebrews 9. So in order to buy us back, in order to declare us innocent, Jesus chose to pay for your sin with his blood. What can wash us white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the only way to be with our God is to be innocent, to be clean and only Jesus makes us clean and can declare us innocent he doesn't call down from heaven demanding that we clean ourselves up first he took the first step he took the first step he revealed himself to us through his creation but he took the last step too and every step in between he came to us he drew near to us he died in our place to redeem us and to clean us And he made our need known to us in the voice of his written word. And he redeems us through Jesus, the living word. The only way for us to come to God and to know that we will be acceptable is to respond to his voice with our voice. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him 
will not be put to shame. You will be acceptable to God, to this holy God. The voice of Jesus, the Redeemer, calls out to you today. With the words of your mouth, confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You will be saved. You will be acceptable. You will be innocent and blameless. You will be clean. This is our parting thought. Creation declares God's glory. God's word declares our need. And the living word declares us innocent so that the redeemed will be declared acceptable in God's sight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony, the declaration of your creation from the beginning of time that gushes forth with such profound clarity that makes us aware of the fact that there is a a holy God that we need to pursue. Thank you for your written word, the power of your written word that, that shows us your character but is also a mirror to our souls that shows us our need to be clean. And Father, thank you that you made a way for us to be clean through Jesus, the living word, the word made flesh. Thank you that he lived that perfect life that none of us have and offered it up on the cross, shedding his own blood, giving his own life to cleanse us from our sin and rising again in power and glory. Father, we pray that all who are here today and watching online would hear the call of the living word, of Jesus the living word, and respond with their voices, confessing with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, and believing in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, that they may be saved. And God, we pray that your spirit would work to this end today in our hearts and all who are here and watching online. God, may you be glorified through that mighty work. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.